Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Charlotte Bond. We are destroying our planet. The scientists agree. There is no denying that catastrophic climate change is imminent. And yet, our leaders continue to play lip service to the issue without taking real, impactful action. If things don't change, drastically and soon, we won't have a planet to call home. Speculative fiction writers have long played with the idea of human-made dystopias, but in recent years, these stories have gathered speed. After all, what speculative fiction is best at is encouraging audiences to view contemporary issues from new perspectives. Cli-fi, or climate fiction, aims to make readers and viewers more aware of the possible future that awaits us before it's too late. In this episode, we are joined by the writing duo of Natasha Calder and Emma Shevchak, known as Calder Shevchak, to discuss all things cli-fi. So, Natasha, Emma, would you like to introduce yourselves to our listeners? Thank you very much for having us. I'm Emma Shevchak, and I am one half of Calder Shevchak. I met my writing partner, Natasha, at university, and we decided to write a novel about having children um, after I gave birth to my first child. And I'm Natasha Calder. I'm the other half of Calder Shevchak. Um, and that's it. That's all I've got, apparently. <laughs> Natasha and I were both writing um, on our own. And then at some point, we made the embarrassing decision to tell each other about our writing ambitions. And in conversations, we started writing stuff, coming up with projects together. And it was really when we landed on the idea of writing something, of writing a piece of cli-fi, um, dystopian fiction around having children, that we really got to the yeah, we got to what we wanted to do. And so that's why we wrote this book. What do you think makes a good cli-fi novel? I mean, what are the trope boxes it needs to tick in order to be considered cli-fi? I think it's quite hard to say what makes a novel of any genre good. Um, that's super subjective and kind of down to the individual reader to decide. But in terms of what boxes a book does need to tick in order to be considered cli-fi, there's sort of a very basic level where I would say it just needs to showcase the impact of an, an unnaturally changing environment on its characters. And those characters don't necessarily have to be human and the climate change doesn't necessarily have to take place on Earth. If you think of something like, um, well, The Man Who Fell to Earth by Walter Tevis um, in that book, the protagonist, uh, Thomas Jerome Newton, famously portrayed by David Bowie in the uh, Nicholas Rogue film, that character is an alien and he comes to Earth in search of resources because his home planet is suffering a massive drought in the wake of nuclear war. Uh, and I think there's a very strong arg argument to say that that work can be categorised as climate fiction because it shares the same concerns about the impact of a technologically advanced society upon the environment. And that's sort of like the very base level of what should be considered cli-fi. Mm -hmm. 
Emma? Yeah, I have to agree with Natasha there. I wouldn't want to box Cli-Fi too heavily. Um, obviously, it's speaking in some way to cli- the climate that we live in, to the environment we live in. Um, but the ways that it can do that can be quite sort of metaphorical. And um, yeah, I don't think it necessarily has to be something that's happening on our earth in our time. But it, it definitely has to be speaking in some way to environmental questions. It's interesting that you say that you wouldn't consider Cli-Fi limited to something that is on the planet Earth because Dan Bloom, who came up with the term Cli-Fi back in 2011, he argues that it has to kind of be on Earth. And I know that some of N.K. Jemisin's work, which is fantasy and is in a fantasy world that is, you know, kind of barren and has really gone through a lot of climate changes – People say that that's not cli-fi because it's, you know, secondary world and that. But it's interesting that you you don't agree with that. And I would say I have to agree with you. <laughs> There's too much, too much agreeing happening. At the end of the day, it's about the message that you're trying to convey, the theme that you're trying to talk about. It doesn't really seem to me to matter whether or not you're on Earth or another planet or a completely made up planet. Exactly. I'd say that it's quite reductive to of Dan Bloom, who coined the term uh, cli-fi, to think of it as something that can only happen um, on this planet, that we can only think of issues pertaining to our own environment if the setting of the fiction or the drama that we're encountering is taking place in um, a, a space that mirrors our own. I think that's just quite a simplistic understanding of how we engage with art and drama and yeah I think that it's it really shouldn't be bound in that way and I think we wouldn't want to be bound by how some people think of genres and the binding nature of that like yeah that's just not for us I don't think. So do you think reducing it down it's not necessarily about earth it's about human impact on their environment it's it doesn't matter if that environment is Mars or Earth or a spaceship even. It's it's all about us just having a certain set of ideas and a certain set of way of acting. And the reason I asked ask this is because I noticed in your novel that even with the wonderful stuff they've put in there and all the regulations, people are still acting as complete arseholes to each other. <laughs> and I just kind of went, even when everybody knows how important it is to save the planet, they're still beating each other up and and whatever. And I just wonder if that's really what Cli-Fi is all about and not necessarily about the environment, as strange as that sounds. There will always be certain moral questions, I suppose, that you play with when you think about um, climate change. Uh, But I think it's also kind of important that you kind of have to walk a tightrope there because we are we do want to think about our own planet and we don't just want to be thinking about moral questions that might then in some way become quite sort of solipsistic. Um, we, we are thinking about concrete material things, but I just think that there are ways that you can um, metaphors you can make of the material problems we have on this, in this planet right now um, that don't, they don't have to be seen through um, an exact kind of mirror of what we have right now. Um, Sorry, Natasha, what were you going to say? You were about to jump in then. Oh, I was just going to say sort of more specifically on the question of whether climate fiction is really about people being very unpleasant to one another. I think there is definitely a tendency within the genre um, 
towards, well, human devolution, because you're dealing with a society in which resources are becoming scarce um, and existence is becoming ever more precarious. So you tend to see that those societies in climate fiction, um, they're in technological decline and they're often very backward looking in their behaviours. So there's a lot of J.D. Ballard that falls Mm. into that category. Um, Things like Russell Herman's Ridley Walker and uh, Cormac McCarthy's The Road also feature that a lot. But it isn't the entire... The entire not not all climate fiction is like that. You can think of um, the Wind Up Girl by Paolo Bacigalupi, um, which has a technologically advanced society and is concerned with climate change, but it's um, not not quite the same. It's a more positive vibe. It's quite a masculine trope, isn't it? I have to say, in a lot of these books written by uh, people identifying as men they tend to feature this kind of like a world that's with with people tearing themselves apart, tearing society apart, this kind of like individualistic um, pursuit of survival. Um, And I suppose that's where kind of cli-fi crosses over with survival and dystopian genres. Um, And it's something that we incorporated into the book because, yeah, people are still being terrible in our novel. Um, But at the same time, I don't think they think that they're being bad. I think there's a certain kind of mediocrity that's the kind that that mirrors the kind of mediocrity that we have right now, um, an unwillingness to confront the reality of uh, the climate emergency. And we, in our in our book, the Offset, we have that um, that kind of false consciousness playing out too. Um, yeah, I don't read a lot of cli-fi, but I do love a good dystopian. And what I tend to find in the dystopian that I've read is that the bad things already happened and then everybody's trying to deal with it. Like you said, the the lack of resources and things. One thing I find quite interesting in your book is that it's kind of in the middle of happening. So you've still got quite a lot of technology and life and normality going on. And I just wondered what made you think, you know what, we're going to deal with this right in the the eye of the storm rather than setting it right at the beginning or right at the end of, of the disaster actually happening. I think something that always bothered us a little bit with dystopias was the fact that, yeah, the terrible thing happens, the world ends, but then the world never really ends because people continue living, the drama continues. Um, And I think we wanted to play more with that um, idea of the time immediately before the world ends, Um, the time where you aren't maybe confronting what's about to happen or you are and you're fearful of that and I think it's more interesting that space that you inhabit before the world ends rather than yeah then going after that when if the world truly has ended there wouldn't be anyone to be in your book yeah if it's right at the end there's not necessarily a story or you're certainly not writing a dystopia you're writing something that's purely post-apocalyptic and we are quite concerned with um showcasing how society would would manage its own decline in such circumstances rather than just individual survivors sort of living out the last few days before everything combusts. Which speaks a lot to this moment, I suppose, with people not wanting to really confront the reality of what's happening, um, even though in the last, I suppose, year or so, it's really it's coming to the fore more and more, but still we're seeing at the institutional level, people not really taking the responsibility that needs to be taken in this moment. And God knows where that's going to lead us. I mean, that brings us on quite nicely to the idea about whether cli-fi has something of the polemic about it. Is teaching a lesson or, or making a moral statement 
integral to this genre of science fiction? I don't know if teaching a lesson is integral to climate fiction necessarily. I sort of tend to think about it more as um, we're simply sort of continuing the conversation within the novel format, which is the thing we love. We're not we're not activists. We're not out there on the, the street protesting or suggesting new ways in which things should be done. We're just um, we're just talking about an issue that concerns us in our day to day lives. And our primary goal as writers is still to be engaging and entertaining rather than to um, teach lessons. I'd also be kind of surprised if if there was anyone in our readership. Given, given how the book is sold and marketed, if there was anyone in our readership who isn't sort of fully on board with what's happening with climate change and, and well aware of the issues and possibly will open out that discussion for them a little bit more. Um, but I imagine most of them are already sort of on the same page as we are. In many ways, I think our book actually problematizes uh, holding firm positions when speaking about climate change because um, we, we sort of muddle this. We are obviously both not climate deniers, climate change deniers in any way, but we wanted to look at the different ways that climate change activism and discourse can sometimes um go off the rails a little bit and can clash and collide with, say, women's reproductive rights. And so we we actually wanted to problematise um, positions there. I don't think we could necessarily, the book um, like tells a certain kind of message, isn't didactic in a simple way. It's, it's interesting because even just feminist discourse gets problematic in its own ways if it's sort of... You know, uh, there's, you get angry when people say, oh, the, the, the angry feminists. Uh, and yet sometimes it feels like, well, there are better ways to approach it that people that will make people listen. And being angry all the time or or shouting your view might not necessarily be the best way to approach it. Perhaps giving people a different way in is the way to go. So, yeah, it, it's it's an interesting way to take it to to actually get people to think about the problems or, or different aspects of the problems than perhaps they've thought about before. Yeah, exactly. Um, not necessarily coming at this from a particular direction and that can sometimes feel quite laborious and like you said, it can maybe feel quite preachy, but just sort of starting a discussion. And while obviously climate change uh, is something that's very important to Natasha and I, I think just as important is... Um, women's reproductive rights and uh, issues around gender and sexuality. And with this book, I suppose we wanted to kind of show, yeah, how all of these things can kind of intersect. And in and when it's done right, um, everyone can kind of lift each other up. But when it's done wrong, everyone can kind of drag each other down. And so we're just kind of unpicking those different things without trying to preach anything particular. I mean, this is the thing. Whenever you kind of get issue-led fiction, it's very easy to sort of fall into that preachiness or to just, you know, kind of beat your reader over the head with it. But you, you've kind of tackled something that's a really thorny subject where you have questions, ethical questions of reproduction in the face of a lack of resources. And you know, how did you actually try to approach such a subject? Because as you say, you know, you don't want to be preachy. You 
don't want to be didactic. How did you sort of really approach that? How did you plan that for the book? And and what pitfalls did you find yourself falling into along the way? I think Natasha and I are both by nature at this point quite preachy in our in our daily lives anyway. Um, uh, we feel these things very strongly. We complain to each other endlessly on the phone about these kind of issues. And um, I think it was very natural for us to want to write an issue-led book because we live out these issues. They're very close to our hearts and our lives and they didn't. it didn't necessarily feel like we were um, approaching something very thorny simply because we live out the reality of these things. Um, that potentially sounds quite pretentious, um, <laughs> but there we go. <laughs> um, no, Emma, I think you're you're right in terms of dealing with issues that are thorny. They're all issues that, that Emma and I have discussed over and over again Um on the issue of reproduction, Emma comes at it from a person who's had two kids and I come at it from the perspective of a person who's decided to never have children. And we've always been able to have those conversations with respect and understanding. Um, and even before we started, uh, we even before we set out to write the offset, so we had that as 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 a background or as, as a foundation for all the discussions that we would then have in the course of writing where we wanted to make sure that we could for all the strength of our concerns, still represent different views with uh, sympathy and understanding. Do you think in that respect, being a writing duo rather than just tackling something by yourself makes it kind of easier because you have two different, potentially two different opinions or thoughts about a subject? Oh, certainly. Yeah. It's amazing to have uh, two different perspectives and two different lives to draw from in terms of our experience and, and what we've seen in our engagement with the world. It, it makes a massive difference. And crucially, I think because we love and respect each other, we're coming um, from very different sort of lives and we've had different lived experiences, but we're able to understand and make sense of each other's lives and um so we we meaningfully engaged with each other's positions. It wasn't like a superficial sort of like cherry picking of, okay, you're that, you think that thing, we put that thing in here, we do that, you know, just because I'm queer, you know, that's that's not the only reason why we have queer characters. It was very much because that's incorporated into our understanding of each other and our knowledge of each other. And yeah, that's that's kind of it was great having a writing partner. I think everyone should have a writing part writing partner. Can I ask then, if you've got quite different views, personal views on children with Emma obviously having children and Natasha quite happy without them, what made you decide that parenting was how you wanted to approach your cli-fi novel? Uh, was it something that you've been chatting about or was it something one of you came up with and they went, oh, that's a good idea? Just how, how did it work with such a, a topic? So it was it was just after I had my son and... Um, it was born out of these conversations. It was just something we were talking about all the time. Um, I was kind of all of a sudden horrified by the idea that I'd brought a child into this terrible world. And Natasha and I were trying to kind of make sense of that horror that I felt. And we were playing out different scenarios and it, it very naturally came out of those conversations, I think. Yeah, definitely. It's a, it is a terrifying time to 
try and work out whether or not you want to have children for a lot of people. It's the obvious thing that they do want, but they have to reconcile that with the world that that child is going to inherit and the impact that that child might have on the world simply by living in it. Um, and it's a horrible position to be in and the burden by society is so often placed on those individuals rather than, you know, the concern is always how many people there are in the world rather than how we're living our lives, which is what would what which is what would make the biggest difference. So it's it's a frightening time. And I think we definitely wanted to tap into that fear and all the ethical concerns within and deal with that fascinating power relationship between parent and child as well. And it was always very interesting for me that as someone that wanted children and then Natasha who didn't want children, it's kind of funny that um, society asks Natasha to justify her decision not to have children, whereas I've never really felt like I've had to justify my decision to want to have children. And that just seems kind of crazy. And then as soon as I had my son, I was kind of like, oh my God, I can't believe that we don't sort of ask people to think about this more of course I think about it and lots of other people think about that too but it's just such a funny thing that not having children is seen as the kind of like subversive position and I think we just wanted to turn that on its head in a way in the book and have a world where actually having children was a subversive thing to do um yeah I was just gonna say actually that's such a good point but because do, do you think women are at the heart of the whole debate about whether to bring children into a difficult world or a world that you know might not be the same as it is now i mean is it a, a women kind of central figures in this debate oh my god yeah of course yeah. <laughs> you don't hear men talking about this so much as it's always no. women and women's responsibility it's always women's responsibility isn't it even if it's conversations around fast fashion it's just somehow everything is always women's fault and it's yeah, completely it's not the cars we're driving it's the clothes we're wearing definitely exactly exactly so yeah <laughs> and women also possibly have a tendency to take it more on themselves i'm not aware of any men going on birth strike but there are a group of women who have decided that the way they want to campaign for climate change is to go on birth strike to commit to not having children um and in other areas as well, we're going to definitely see more and more pressure put on women in terms of reproductive rights, particularly as um, sort of separate from climate change, countries deal with the, the economic impacts of having ageing populations. Um, and what that means for everyone with the uterus, I don't know, but I don't think it's going to be good. So your idea of the offset rule, where if you have one child, then one parent has to die, uh, received mixed reactions from the characters within the novel itself. So, I mean, what gave you the idea to create such a limitation on parenting? Um, and why did you think that might be something that would be feasibly accepted by the world you created? Natasha and I are very drawn to horrifying uh, concepts and sort of the the horrors that we encounter in the real world too. And I think the offset felt like something that was a very extreme version of ideas that are already posited in the world we're living in and, and already seeded. And while in some ways it might seem very extreme, I think we spend quite a lot of the book trying to show how we're maybe only a few steps away from uh, controls around reproduction in that way. We've already historically seen controls around reproduction. We're seeing that right now, eugenics and whatnot. And um, 
I think we liked that idea of the thing hiding in plain sight and then just being really extreme with it. And I think the longer you start thinking about the offset, the concept of the offset, the the more you start to see resonances with the real world that we're living in. So we just wanted to go very extreme with something that initially seems unrealistic, but with a bit of thought is actually right here, right now. Yeah, I that's pretty much what I was going to say as well, that even though the concept of the offset is extreme, it's it's not really beyond the bounds of reason once you start to look at the world we live in, because capital punishment and strict control of reproductive rights are simply part of our present day global reality. You just you only have to look as far as Texas to see that take effect and and the horrible outcome that, that it is. So all we're doing is flipping the direction rather than preventing women from having, um, rather than restricting access to abortion we're sort of preventing women from having kids in our fictional world but it's it's very much based on the horrors of the world we live in now and we've seen states in our lifetime um uh crack down on the switch yeah exactly i mean we've seen the one the one child policy in china we've seen other states enact similar things it it happens and so yeah i don't know is there going to be a sequel uh <laughs> we certainly planned yeah it's be- it's very much written into yeah it's written as a sequel as a series yeah that's fine because what i was going to ask is obviously the offset the books that you've written deals with the first part of the the issue and you know choosing the parent and all that and i'm trying to phrase it in a way that gives no spoilers <laughs> but obviously the fallout of such a choice is not dealt with in the book on a sort of um level i know that you spent a lot of time looking at the build-up to it so is that something you're planning to look at in the next book how this actually affects families not just those waiting for it but when it's actually happened and the scars of that something else the book doesn't deal with is how precisely society came to the point of instigating the offset and so that's something else we might consider thinking about in subsequent books but we wouldn't want to give too much away there um yeah there are some very specific questions we need to answer on the basis of this first book, but as you point out, there are a lot of um, scenarios and, and points along that journey of a family going through an offset choice that, that, that we would love to explore further. But there are specific questions relating to the science that do need yeah. to be answered, and we hope that readers don't think we've kind of... Uh, um, just let, let, let it go <laughs> yeah we haven't copped out there there's some open-ended questions but purposefully I really enjoyed reading about Mary's journey but I must admit every time we got to a bit like where Alex went to the clinic and helped out and he had all the backstories I was really impressed with the wider world that you built and all these different reactions um, and all these different ways that people could react to the offset as a rule and to climate change and everything. So I must admit, if you do a, a sequel where you explore that even more, it's going to be fantastic because, you know, you've got so much in there that I think, you know, you could could bring out. It would be great. There are so many different ways that people in your novel do react and would react to normal life as well. Exactly. And we have had um, the, 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 the book is being adapted um, for TV and we're hoping that they're going to play with different outcomes and different ways of uh, of showing how the offset can be eked out. 
since we've been talking already just about you know the the extreme um because it's an extreme example of of this issue taken to you know the its inevitable conclusion um do you think creating an extreme response to a contemporary issue in fiction makes readers makes an audience makes people sit up and take more notice of the issue um compared to a book that maybe deals with it in a more realistic or balanced way and not so extreme i think there are different ways of handling this i think another book that's come out this year that is is cli-fi that's been very successful very different from our book is this fragile earth by Susanna wise and that's that is much more realistic in the sense of showing technological collapse and showing how people have maybe shielded themselves from the reality of climate change um, through technological tools. And then when those tools um, break down, what are you left with? And I think that is not shocking in the same way because that's so sort of realistic. But it I, th- I think there are I think there are different ways that you can do this, um, and I think it kind of depends on how well you immerse your readership into your characters um, and into their lives. That that's the measure of the success, rather than simply, yeah, how sort of outlandish your plot and your idea. Yeah, and Emma's spoken already. Um this episode I guess about um, the power of metaphor and fiction does provide us with metaphors and sometimes the virtue of a metaphor is it is extreme but it provides us with a way of understanding understanding or uh, putting into a fresh perspective the world around us so um, I don't know if it will actually make anyone who is apathetic change their views but um, for everyone who's interested it, it could be useful. I wanted to actually ask you because it's it's interesting how you have a book that's you know obviously a lot about climate but also as we've mentioned the the parental aspect and the reproductive rights and then you have almost the entire thing told from women's perspectives about women you know it's it's a, you know a daughter having to choose which parent to basically kill uh but also her parents are both women as well. And it's it's really interesting to have a story about reproduction with a homosexual couple. I mean, that's that's a really interesting choice. Can I ask about how you came to, to make that decision? It was very natural for us, um, first and foremost, because we both identify as women. And so to write women's experiences in this way was kind of the easy the easy thing to do um but also we do feel like women's reproductive rights should be centered on women and when it comes to um thinking of family we don't want to be so bound by heterosexual norms heteronormative norms we think we both think of family as being something that's very multiform and we we absolutely didn't want with a book that treated of family we really did not want to um, show a heteronormative family. And um, that, of course, in some way is influenced by the fact of me identifying as queer. Um, and in other ways, just because of this political moment we find ourselves in, um, I think it feels important to not just replicate heteronorms 
all the time when you don't have to. I think every single time we had a new character or a new family set up, we would kind of have to justify, well, why would that be heteronormative? Like, you know, you make that decision every time you make a character, you make the decision to make them whatever gender or or non-binary, however you want to make them. And every time I think we wanted to make the choice of, of not simply being heteronormative. Yeah, exactly. There would have been a, a way to write this concept that would have simply reinforced everything that is heteronormative. And it was it was simply, we didn't want to do that. It, it just would have been also quite difficult, I think, to write out family dynamics for us um, when we're not cl- cleanly living heteronormative lives right now. And I think it just would have been disingenuous in some way, at least for me, to have written about having children heteronormatively <laughs> as well. No, it's a great angle and it's something that we don't see enough of. So it's really nice to see that. It's just because it's different and you don't see much of it, it's it's really interesting to see how that came about. But some of your talk tonight has just awakened the Star Trek nerd in me, which... <laughs> uh, listeners will know that it's not hard to do that and I'm, I'm not constantly linking things back to Star Trek but <laughs> I mean when you're talking about you know things like how did they come up you know how could a society come up with something like the offset rule how would they get to that point and you know I, I think of that episode in in Star Trek original series where they visit a planet who has almost like a lottery um, where just randomly instead of actually fighting a war anymore, certain points of the year, they're just like, okay, well now someone has to die and a computer just picks the random person. <laughs> um, you know, well, I mean, that's, that's one way to do it without all the emotional fallout. If the computer's making the choices, just, you know, uh, we are free of that uh, <laughs> decision-making process. But, okay, this is a the, the sort of insight into my bizarre brain. But that thought <laughs> then led me to thinking about Gene Roddenberry talking about kind of the that he didn't want. So when he when it came to Next Generation Star Trek, he was like, "Okay, I don't want the the tension to come from you know between the crew members. It always has to be external because you know this is supposed to represent something." you know, really wonderful and, like, we don't get mad at each other anymore. So all the the tension and everything has to be outside. Um, and it just, it, it made me think again because you have a narrative where it's kind of this, you know, world-destroying, catastrophic state of events externally. So that's, like, massive, massive tension and that feels like it could be so overwhelming for a narrative. And yet, you know, you and I would say that good narratives keep character and interpersonal development mm-hmm. as and tension as like really central to the story. But how how do you manage to do that? Like how do you manage to keep the kind of local microcosmic story the center while you've got world destroying catastrophe in the background <laughs> i think that's through truly inhabiting your characters and truly putting yourself in their 
position. And again, without wishing to sort of <laughs> paint the world that we're living in as being post-apocalyptic, but it is a bit pre-apocalyptic, I feel like it's not so hard for us to imagine living in a world where we have to make huge choices all the time, huge decisions. Um, I think, yeah, again, it mimics a lot of what is going on at the moment in the world. Um, I think probably the the kind of current political climate has really um, helped us imagine how awful it is for a lot of people um, right now uh, in many different ways. And yeah, that kind of, that extremeness of, of reality, it feels like we're living in an extreme reality and, but we're still people. We still think and feel and live out our own kind of like subplots. So it's not so hard to imagine our characters doing that too. Yeah. Um, and also there's simply no story without the characters and particularly when you're telling the story of a family, it's really interesting uh, what you said about Star Trek, but uh, it wouldn't be a family if the tension didn't come from within, if all the pressures were purely external, because that's just not how families are, certainly not in our experiences of them. It's not how um, life works, is it? It's not, we no. don't just live out political moments. We are people in those moments. We still think and feel our own things. So we all relate in different ways. You know, it, at the end of the world, the person that's, you know, they're facing that apocalypse they're still our person with a body that's lived a life yeah so that was always critical to us to knowing who our characters were how they related to one another um that drove everything that drove the plot um and in some ways although the the context of the world they're in the world we're in could be a distraction in a way it's also a helpful character test to check how well do you know your character is not so much do you know what they'd have for breakfast, how will they respond to massive existential crisis, then you really know a character well if, if you're sure about that. Um, so in a way it was, it was useful rather than, uh, it was an aid rather than a challenge to overcome. Although I like your assumption there, Natasha, that we all know how we're going to respond to an existential <laughs> crisis. I have no idea what I'm going to do when a meteor But that's is your deep. character, Emma, is that you don't know what you do. <laughs> and probably other people around you suspect that they have some idea about what you would do in certain circumstances. Do you know what I'd do if a meteor hit the earth right now? Do you know? I don't think anyone knows what I'd do. But it is interesting to speculate, isn't it? Yeah. Speaking of massive existential crises, um, <laughs> cli-fi as a genre, as a type of fiction, do we think that most of it is hopeful or do we see a thread of pessimism running through it? I think yes, it, it, definitely sorry. pessimistic, right? Oh, no, no I'm go. going to disagree. I'm oh, going to okay. It really we, love, we love debate. <laughs> go on, go on. I'm going to say it really depends. I'm going to say a lot of it is deeply pessimistic stuff like J.G. Ballard, The Drowned World, is just so grim about humanity's ability to combat climate change and to remain civilised in the wake of climate catastrophe. Then you've got other stuff that is, is still horrifying, but there has a thread of optimism in it, something like Jeff Vandermeer's Southern Reach trilogy, which is terrifying set of books, absolutely wonderful, but there is an optimism there about nature's ability to adapt and grow and thrive despite humanity's best efforts to destroy everything. And then, of course, there's a whole other set of books in the solar punk genre where 
Um, there are hopeful futures for humanity using technology to live uh, in a way that is sustainable um, and in harmony with nature. And, and those those stories are still definitely within the climate fiction umbrella, but they're massively optimistic and hopeful for the future. So I don't think it's either one or the other. I'd argue that something that's too optimistic, however, wouldn't be the call to arms that would be needed no. in the climate fiction that we need for today. Um, I think I would read a lot of these books as being pessimistic, sorry, pessimistic only in how they are, in how they become motivating, not necessarily, yeah, in what they might be saying at the end of the day. But I think anything that's telling us that, you know, everything will be all right is kind of yeah, well, I suppose what those even those optimistic works do have a thread is not one of them suggests even for a moment that ha what we're doing now is right. There is that pessimism through everything. So even the, the solar punk versions, they're a completely different way from living. They don't suggest that everything will be all right if we continue as we are. They suggest that there's a way to change what we're doing that would yeah. lead to a positive outcome. But yeah, they they absolutely all do have that pessimism about how we're living in the world today. Mm. I, that's That's for sure. We need some hope, right? We, else why bother with anything? <laughs> a good existential question. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true and uh, was said very well by Ursula Le Guin when she accepted. Mm. Was it a, a lifetime sort of achievement award type thing? Mm. And she was talking about how we need hopeful science fiction and, and speculative fiction generally. And I think you're right. It's can we say pessimism with a cause <laughs> yeah well thank you so much for joining us but would you like to just tell our listeners a little bit about the offset if they haven't already read the book so the offset is about choosing one of your parents to die as a carbon offset for your own life um the book features um, a, a family of a girl called Miri and her two parents, her two mums, Jack and Alex. Miri is on the cusp of her own offset decision. She has to pick one of her mothers to die. And the book grapples with what it means to live in a planet that has reduced resources um, and is trying to handle um, overpopulation. So there you have it. And it is pessimism with a cause. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for joining us and talking to us all about Cli-Fi. Thank you so much for having us. It's been great to be here. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.